0: All right, so this is the beginning of a special series on unstandardized English. Uh, I live in New York City, which has been on, they're saying lockdown. It's not lockdown, right? You can go outside, just go outside by yourself um, or with the people who you live with. Um, and, uh, but the self isolation, the flatten the curve, all that stuff happened here recently. And um, I'm going to try and release an episode every week during it because i really think that there is this is terrible this is absolutely terrible but when we make it through and as a black person i can never give up uh when we make it through to the other side there's going to be some interesting conversations to be had um and there's going to be some changes that we can make i think we'll see i don't know um There have been a lot of radical changes that have happened really quickly, including like moratoriums on various obstacles that apparently were nonsense, like everyone has been saying. But uh, we're going to have to organize and plan and work together to do it. So in this series, which I'm calling Critical COVID Conversations, um, we're going to talk about some of those things that we might be able to do after this crisis is over. This week I'm talking to Dr. Jessica Sirk, who has written on two concepts that I find really interesting, namely niceness and whiteness. I'm going to hear from her on some of the things she's written, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the future and what we think might be possible after this crisis ends. So hope you enjoy the first in a series. I'll be back next week with another one. Welcome back to Unstandardized English. My name is JPB Gerald, and I'm back with Jessica Searck. And we are going to talk about uh, some things that are going on in the world today, and also uh, Dr. Searck's work in relation to them. So uh, Dr. Searck has written some really interesting pieces related to the concepts of niceness and whiteness. And we're going to start by talking about those things. But first, welcome, Dr. Searich. Thank you for coming to talk to me today.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Um, So let me turn the volume up so that we can actually be heard. Um, Before we get into all the things, can you just lay out for for me and people listening a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you've done, not just like, here's what I've written the articles about, but, you know, just give me the bio, you know, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, so I'm currently an assistant professor of education at St. Lawrence University in extreme upstate New York, like think almost Canada. Um, and so I have been here, this is my fourth year. And so I've been out of my PhD program for four years now, but I'm still working on getting some of my dissertation research published and out there. Um, and presenting at it in various forums. Um, but my, my dissertation research um, is a bit of what you were referencing. And so it was looking at two high schools in non-urban settings in the Midwest in what is called the new Latino diaspora. So places that haven't historically had Latino populations, but do now. And so the two high schools that I did my research in were um, between fifty and sixty-five percent Latino. Um, they one of them had graduating classes of thirty students, the other had graduating classes of three hundred and thirty students. So there was a bit of a difference in size, but really I looked at, like, as a white woman myself, coming from one of those backgrounds as well, I was raised in a town that would be considered part of the new Latino diaspora, um, how we construct, really co-construct, um, race, ethnicity, language, citizenship, all these kinds of things. So what came out of that data was really this idea of whiteness and niceness. And so how the white students and some of the Latino students actually were talking about race in their schools was through a very, very like nice, polite um, kind of speech, like not really wanting to step on anybody's toes, not really wanting to talk about it. And really being afraid of like saying the wrong thing or offending somebody. And so that's mainly what I've been looking at um, in terms of race and in terms of language. Since one of the schools had had like a, I think, 300%. No, I can't remember what the percent um, increase was, but they had over doubled their. Um, English language population, English language learner population.
0: So, from like how about how many people are we talking? Because you know, double could be like two to four. So,
1: right, exactly. So it went from. Let's see if I can remember this. You're not give me
0: exact. I'm just just for the sake of scale. Because I'm. It
1: was so. It was the school that had thirty student graduation, like graduating classes, and so it went from I think fourteen to thirty. Or 14 to, yeah, I think it was like 14 to 30. So it was like 100 and some percent, if I'm remembering correctly. I could be getting these, my own percentages wrong. But, um, so it basically went from being half of a, like, class year to like a whole class year. And it was really different from the type of, so like some of the students who had previously been English language learners um, were Mexican, and the new students who were coming in were Guatemalan. So that was another point of contention, because not only was there Spanish, but there's also indigenous languages, and not only was it kind of this more, um, white Mexican population, it was this indigenous Guatemalan population coming in. So it really blended not only, um, like whiteness, but also who's Spanish counts and does Spanish even count? And if Spanish counts, do indigenous languages count? Um, and are they brought into the school environment or in the case of both of these schools? No.
0: So let me back up even further. Farther. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, what was your background before you, you went into your PhD program?
1: Yeah, so I was a high school math teacher. So I got my bachelor's in um, math education and then my master's in English as a second language education. Um, and That's I taught high masters. school math.
0: Yeah. yeah. I have a TESOL master's, so.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so those those issues of, like, language and how – It's either brought in or not brought in. Were already on my mind before my PhD program, Um, but yeah, I was in the classroom in two states, in Nebraska and in Texas.
0: Um, so because because I'm a although I don't don't teach language right now, my background is in language teaching, which is um, how sort of the angle through which I came to this. Like there's two angles, right? There's my own experiences, and then there's my background in language teaching. And one of the things that um, I found interesting about uh, this sort of thing is that I didn't really think about race that much in my master's program. I just didn't think about. It, um, it didn't come up really, and. Uh, at the time, that didn't seem, you know, how do you notice the, the lack of something unless you're paying attention, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then time went on and I had more experiences. And then there were mountain personal experiences being black in the field. And then there were also experiences of like thinking about how, there, like there's all these issues and I couldn't really find the line, like some, something feels wrong in this field. I can't quite figure out what it is, right? There's a lot of things wrong in the field, but a lot of them like, it's, it's then we don't really want to talk about the racial aspect of it mm-hmm. because we think, well, we're just talking about language. It's not race. No, we, we're talking about culture. It's not race. Like the, the So last spring I got in, I was in a class because I'm in my second year of my doctoral program. So that was my first year. And I was in a class on multilingual learners and it just it was like, all right, it's kind of worked out for me. It was one of the classes we had to take, but the order was not mandated. And I just happened to take it my first year. I said, this worked out for me. Um, and we had to do some like preliminary research and I did a survey about race and I was asking like master's graduates, um, did you study race in your teacher training? It, It was a couple of questions, but that was the main one I was interested in. Right. And they pretty much all said yes. Not all of them, but they pretty much all said yes. And then now the thing is, now this is not IRB level like research. It was just me sending out a survey and uh i found it curious because they went to my master's program and we did not study race so i was just like what 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 did what were you talking about Uh, (laughs) but then i asked myself a deeper question which is what do they think it means to have studied race yeah you know i didn't do it in the survey because i didn't think about it until it happened but like um i was like do they think that something touching on culture or something that may be mentioned race tangentially it, mm-hmm. they read that article once and they're done and it's, that's it they, race is over they studied it right and I noticed that like you bring up race with someone who doesn't want to talk about race they know it's not like they know they ha- they can't completely avoid it so mm-hmm. they'll just sort of go a little bit to the side and talk about culture or language or whatever so I asked them how do you bring race into the classroom? And the ones who are well-versed in it will give me a very detailed, da, 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 or they'll say, you know what, I don't really bring it in. Frankly, I can, like, that is a legitimate answer. If you just say, it. I don't really bring it in. Like, you know, the problem is when you want to try to talk your way around the subject. Right. And I feel like that's where the niceness comes in. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not yes or no. It's this sort of terrible middle ground where you don't get anywhere. Um right because I felt that the people were more interested in being nice than answering the question. Mm -hmm. So in that way, just sort of a segue, what is your construction of uh, the concept of niceness, you know, which you have capitalized in, in writing. So you have a very specific definition thereof.
1: Yeah. So I would say that avoidance and like the avoidance that you mentioned and also the like, kind of diversion from race to culture is definitely part of niceness and that's i mean you see it in the opening vignette of the chapter from the press of nice that i'm in um that grace the student says that like Nobody wanted to step on anybody's toes, and nobody wanted to offend people, and and everybody was afraid, and we see this, um, even, oh yeah, even in, like, faculty, oh, I, my battery is running out as well, um, oops, battery, (laughs) dead, dying, of, Okay.
0: Interlude.
1: Interlude. Okay. Plugged in. Good to go. Um so what was I saying?
0: The vignette. So,
1: yeah, Grace, the vignette. Um she talks about how she doesn't want to find anybody, doesn't want to step on anybody's toes um and then later in the chapter, Eddie, a Guatemalan student, says that he would have preferred the honesty. So, and I see this even in, I'm on the diversity committee of my university, and I see this even And we've done some focus groups with faculty about how they feel about bringing in diversity content, which I'm, you can't hear the quotes, but... Yeah, if you could see, I'm putting air quotes around diversity. Um, so diverse topics into their classroom. And there's a lot of, well, I'm like afraid or like, I don't know how to do it. Or they always like, say they don't know how to do it. Exactly. So either we're not preparing them, which I mean. I sure, think, I believe
0: that. But... I
1: believe that. Um, or it's also a manifestation of nice. It's, it's a way to get out of it without really. I mean, I think that a lot of them really do not know how to do it and that's a problem in and of itself and that's a systemic problem but then I think that there's probably some that either don't think it's their role or they just don't want to do it and so saying that they don't know how is an easy way to get out of it and it's a nice way to get out of it um but that kind of I don't know what to say so I'm just not going to say anything at all is like the main way that I've even seen it in my classes with undergrads when we do talk about race a lot. And they sit back and they're really quiet and they let the like one or two or three sometimes, which is a big deal, um, students of color take the lead, Um, which is inherently, I would say, not nice to put a burden like that on the few students of color in the classroom, but um, it's a way to kind of like save face, I think a lot of times. Um, and I mean, it also comes, I think from, I mean, 18 to 20 years of having absolutely no practice talking about race. Um, they've never been asked to do that before. So they're put in this position and it's the first time and, So I think there's just a lot of not knowing. Um, There's also, like, the thing that I found most interesting is when I did a critical discourse analysis of some of my interview data for my dissertation, because some of the people that really towed the, like, company line of everybody gets along and, um, it's not a problem here and the students are great and they accept each other. That kind of rhetoric of niceness. We're also the ones where you looked, when you looked in their speech, they would say stuff like when we got our first Hispanic, which I always like to pull that idea out because it's like, it's very much like when I got my first bicycle, um, when we got our first TV, when I got my first iPhone It's like very materialistic and so it's like they don't realize the ideology that they've been so steeped in for so long and they haven't really done that critical self-reflection to think through what it means to them to teach in a majority Latino school district.
0: I mean, it's a lot of them, they're like fish in the water and you tell them, you're in a bunch of water. It's like, I don't see any water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, but you're surrounded by it. It's like, this is, just, this is
1: just where I am.
0: Um, right. And how do you tie that in to your conception of whiteness?
1: So how do I tie niceness? the fact that they like don't see it
0: yeah, like 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 so like or and also just asking like the way you have defined whiteness in, in the writing. I mean I know what you wrote, but I'm just having you say it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um so I think colorblindness and niceness are very, very linked. I think that if we say that we don't see race then it justifies why we're not talking about race. It talks about why we're not um, incredibly enraged when things like police brutality disproportionately affect communities of color. Um, If we just say we don't see it, it's, it lets us, I feel like niceness is a bubble that like, once that bubble is burst, like you're not protected by niceness anymore. Like you have to actually be in the world with the bad stuff. And as we're all living in a bubble currently, that's a pretty apt metaphor, I think. But if I just live in my little bubble and don't acknowledge some of the bad things that are happening, not to people like me, But to people of color and other marginalized communities, I get to keep living my nice life.
0: I think a lot about a couple of inflection points that I had related to this. I may not have used the same terms um, until I really got into the academic literature and started having conversations with people about it. But, you know, you feel things and you go back and you realize that you had data within yourself all this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I spent a long time in many schools being, you know, the black kid, right? You know, very expensive schools. And I wasn't literally the only black kid in school, but most of my classes, right? Unless I was mm-hmm. not a big class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growing up, middle school, high school, yeah, there were like 80 kids in my grade and it was like five of us that were black, you know, which was not that bad for a private school at the time. Um but to it was it was the water I was the fish right like i, I like i I'd been there since I was a kid, like a like a three year old so it was really hard for me to notice the problems because the, the I just got so used to them. There were so many things that when I went back last year, not to my school but back to the, really think about things where I learned a little bit more about critical race theory and things like that that looking back had really been like not okay. But I just sort of swallowed them in the pursuit of niceness um, and in the support of whiteness without realizing what I was doing. And um, there've been a couple of moments later where like like things would happen and I would sort of have an awakening and then it would just sort of fade away because it was easier to put it back away you know, I had moments in college that I noticed things were happening that were not okay. And I would speak up and then I would have a moment and it felt really great and authentic. And then it was just easier to fall back into the habits that I was in. So, um, and then like in 2014, right after Michael Brown, um, yeah. I, I guess more after the acquittal probably was when things were really happening. Um, I started really trying to talk about it because I realized like, None of my friends, at least on Facebook, were like talking about it. And I was like, what is wrong with you people? Why aren't you talking about this? It's not even, why don't you agree with me? It's like, you're just not even talking about it, right? And I mostly was friends with like, quote unquote, progressive white people. And mm-hmm. they didn't even want to talk about it. And then they would get annoyed that I kept talking about it. And I was just like, who is this? What What is happening here? Um, and... I, it exposed different parts of the people I was talking to in a way that I was really uncomfortable with. So then, like, again, the moment faded again. It's not going to fade this time, I tell myself, (laughs) this current moment I'm in, because um, I'm realizing that that desire to placate is what has held me and a lot of people back for so long. But on the other hand, I get it, because in a lot of situations, it's dangerous not not to just fall back down. Mm -hmm. You know, it's safer in the moment, to just be nice, but in the actual long run, it's what they've. I forget which book I'm talking about, but it's what they call like spirit murder, right? Like it really, it really harms you on the inside to to submit to these things. And uh, I see people who I know are clearly doing that, and I'm just like, somewhere deep down in there, you got to be hurting, <laughs> but you probably don't even realize it. Um, and I feel bad when I see that. Like I'm just like, what's Ben Carson doing? What is he doing? Um, no. <laughs> just That's like,
1: a big question. yeah,
0: just like, what, sir, sir? <laughs> you weren't always like this. Maybe you were, but you weren't always talking like this.
1: Right.
0: Um, I don't know. Could it, he? He had everything, and he's like for like I don't know. I don't even want to talk about. It. But um, so yeah, the. To me, the, the the idea of both niceness and whiteness, and sort of the way that one protects the other, is um, something that I think is not it's not spoken enough about. There's some literature on it. There's yours. There's the was it the I can't forget which article it is or the one that's called "Nice White Lady." But it's like that so many teachers, especially, yeah. are that right? A nice white lady. And if you try to burst that bubble of them being a nice white lady, the fury (laughs) that comes when that bubble is burst, it's, it's kind of terrifying. Um, You know, and it's not just teachers, right? It's all of these social, you you get the social workers, you get nurses, right? I don't want to say anything negative about nurses right now, but like you get that same defensiveness and like, I get it because Part of the reason people go into these professions is because they are socially good, and they are. But just it—it's the same thing, like um, just a reflexive belief that someone is a hero for joining a profession pro- prohibits people from genuinely growing and supporting the people that they need to support. I think.
1: Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So. so nice in my students when they like they don't want to have a conversation all the time they want well I mean wh- what I view as like a productive conversation where somebody says something and you question you try to like understand where they're coming from you offer alternatives you Um, ask them for evidence, like, you actually get to the bottom of something together by this, like, give and take and question and answer and, um, like, deeper conversations. It's just, like, I think a lot of um, classroom discussion is just, like, I say my bit, you say your bit, you say your bit, I'll say my bit, and, like, we never come to, like, any kind of a consensus and not that there needs to be consensus, but, like, a, a like, takeaway point of, like, okay, there are these two perspectives and there's this evidence or anything. Like, it's just, it's very, and I think that, that leads to, like, the siloing that we see in society because it's happening. And it's a very nice thing to not question somebody or ask them for evidence. Because if I say, now, what did you mean by that? Like, then I'm implying that, like, you weren't clear or that um, I, there's just, like, a lot of, like, implications that we feel. But I don't – I would like to see – I don't know. I don't know what I would like to see. I would like to see, like, more of those – really pushing each other moments in classrooms
0: so let me push you a little bit then yeah um you are a white lady i am um you started out as a school teacher you yep. started out your career um and you could easily have just been one of however many million nice white ladies could have just stayed doing that now, I'm not going to ask you why you got a PhD. People have their many reasons for that. It's not really what I'm asking about. But, like, what caused you to veer from that path? Because this is really what a lot of my research, and you wouldn't be someone that I could, It's maybe I need to delimit myself, because the research I'm about to do is going to be asking white language, white English language teachers about their own whiteness and how they came to conceptualize a, you know, more anti-racist whiteness that they have. But you're not a language teacher, so I can't ask you. Mm -hmm. But I'm still gonna ask you, it's just not about, just not for my research. Um, (laughs) So, like, uh, what caused you to veer from the path of the traditional niceness and whiteness that would have been so much easier to just stay in, right? Because uh, I've always, I've asked myself, and this is why I'm interested in the research, like, does that just happen? Or was it a class or was it something you experienced, some other form of oppression or something where you're like, Oh, this is bad, I should do something about it. But like there's still something about whiteness and mm-hmm. niceness that makes it like this uberalis, you know, this thing that is just like, I cannot question this. So yeah. to be a person within it and to question it is, is, is unusual, son saying how did you get to the point where you decided to question it?
1: yeah so I think so when I look back on my trajectory, I think I don't know because I was very much am like like every I think white person very immersed in like the nicest i I mean i still fall back on it we all still do like i'm not gonna say like oh i'm like totally above it um because i'm not nobody is i don't think um but i remember taking multicultural education as an undergraduate and it was very very like heroes and holidays like i remember doing a project It was before I decided I wanted to teach math. And at that time, I thought I wanted to be an elementary teacher. And so I remember doing, like, my project was, like, how I was going to teach about Kwanzaa in, like, a fifth-grade social studies class, which, like, is quintessential, like, get around race. And that was how multicultural ed was taught at that time. Was very much like this culture, and I mean, in multicultural education, I mean, it's right there in the title, and I've really gone away from that. But I taught for a few years. The reason why I did get my PhD or go back for my PhD was because I was teaching in Texas, and they are hella into testing, and I couldn't do it anymore. Because I felt so morally bankrupt by doing the testing regime. Because I was at an alternative high school. So there were a lot of students who had been kicked out of their comprehensive high school for either um, gang involvement or they had chosen to come to the alternative high school because they were teen moms or they had some kind of like social anxiety or whatever so there was a lot of different reasons why students were there but it was a very unique population it was like a school of 100 um, and it was way more diverse than the comprehensive high schools in the district Um, and we had a lot more special education students I would say and we I was like tasked with teaching a test prep class and I just couldn't do it anymore. I was like, this is, this is crazy. Like students aren't graduating because they're not passing this test. And some of them it's like just because they speak English as a second language. Some of them it's because they have a learning disorder, whatever. So fast forward to my PhD, I start teaching multicultural education and it has changed a lot in the five years that I have been out And now it's being taught by Dr. John Rabel. Shout out to him because he was, he's the one that's responsible for me going outside of the nice white lady trope. Because I started, I got assigned to TAing with him. And he was teaching um, multicultural ed through like a social justice lens where we were talking about race. We were talking about white privilege. We were talking about, um sexual orientation we were talking about um a whole variety of topics religion um and it was just so different from how I had experienced multicultural education and um I can't even really remember how I got introduced to critical race theory I think it had to have been him um But yeah, that kind of radically changed my life. Because when I went, when I started my PhD program, I was going to do something about alternative education. Um, That was going to be my research area. Um, Like the best way to structure an alternative setting and assess students, whatever, whatever. Which was probably not going to be so critical on the race front. But it was really him. Yeah.
0: People I've spoken to pretty so far, because I'm just sort of feeling things out, but I have to actually do the research soon, um, have mostly done, said the same thing. Not specifically him, but. <laughs> uh, everywhere. Just changing everybody. Um, but like they tend to, to call it back to a couple of instances or people. So the research I'm going to do is sort of about, I I want people to sort of construct the narrative of, like, how they changed their, you know, the way they thought about both their knowledge of race and their identity when it comes to race, because um, the way I see it, I think it's important to know both, because I think sometimes someone can just sort of academically gather knowledge about race and racism and just keep themselves out of it and so that doesn't really work by itself like you mm-hmm. you need that you need to know this stuff but mm-hmm. like if all you do is learn about race and racism you're like oh that's bad mm. that's a problem um yeah. like you should know that like you yeah. should you should absorb this information into you but if all you don't know is the, the facts well what do you have to do with it right mm-hmm. and then i think it's important to think about whether one wants, like I, you know, I, because of the research and the way the academics are, I tend to think of the racial identity development and so forth, but like, I don't care if somebody calls it that or not, but like thinking about one's relationship to race and racism, and you know, what part they can play or have played, or there was their family inherited, you know, that sort of thing, like thinking really about one's place, so my dishwasher is done. Uh, I think both of those things need to be, to be balanced. And so, um, my long-term idea is to try to figure out how to get more people to balance both of those things. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Very important.
0: I know it's done. I know. Thank you, dishwasher. Um, so, you know, those are my ideas. Now, one of the things that I, you know, wanted to talk about with with terms of like niceness and whiteness is it's very difficult to, okay, you changed, you sort of did this autonomously, right? Yeah, he influenced you, but you weren't really necessarily openly resistant to it, right? Right. So like um, the people who are openly hostile to it, I'm not too worried about them. Like they're just not, they are not my concern. Mm-hmm. um the people who are eager but they don't know enough is sort of where i think both me and you were right you're just sort of like eager and open to it and then something happened and the information came and you just kept following the path and so forth i'm not saying like it like it's not easy but like mm-hmm. there's no fight there it is work it's difficult it's challenging well the the real population that I'm curious about is, you know, the people who, they really do have the ability to, to make these changes, but they're like one step away from being willing to mm-hmm. make those changes. You know, their they're first, like last year when I was starting that research project, I posted, a, I was at AERA, and I posted a picture from a presentation And the presentation was about the just, you know, disproportionality, right? And Mm -hmm. um, some slide that said, like, uh, the the student had been placed into special education and they shouldn't have because they spoke a second language, et cetera, Mm et cetera. And the quote was basically like super racist, right? Like, you know, just like, a, a, well, he doesn't know anything. So, some, something like that, the teachers say. Um, and my caption to the picture was like, wow, teachers can be gross. It's not a very, it's not a very, you know, controversial statement. I said can be. I didn't say are. I didn't say all. I said can be. I thought I'd tell the story a lot. But the point is, I had someone who responded and got really mad that, that I said that and said, teachers work hard. And I'm like, I don't know how, what, how that contradicts what
1: i said and <laughs>
0: What does that to yeah. do with anything? <laughs>
1: Those can happen at the same time.
0: Right. So it's like, it's, you see know, these discursive buffers that people use to like, I'm just going to go off in this direction. because but, but all it is, what she's really saying is be nice to me. Right. Even though I wasn't really talking to her. But what she's saying is be nice to me, you know, Um, leave me alone. Like, sometimes I get it when teachers are saying, I really want to help, but I'm overworked, blah, blah, blah. Like, part of me thinks, like, I get it, but part of me also thinks that, like, as you mentioned, people haven't been trained to deal with these conversations, so it is a lot of work to do like anti-racist stuff if you have spent your entire life only learning racism.
1: You're like right.
0: then, then yeah, it is a lot of extra work. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like there's a lot of background knowledge that you're lacking.
0: Right. So yeah, of course it's a lot of work to put this stuff into your curriculum if it's not there. So yeah. I wouldn't want to redo my curriculum from scratch to make it anti-racist if I was very invested in things remaining the same. Yeah. But segue.
1: Yeah.
0: In 2020, nothing is the same. <laughs> so Right. we are in a position such that, that was, that was a great segue, Justin. Um, <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. That uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so we can't really speculate on exactly what the facts are going to be, mm-hmm. but one presumes at some point we will go back to school. I mean, literal school. Yeah. Um,
1: Brick and mortar.
0: Yeah, to some extent. We'll, I don't know. we'll see how much of that happens, and then not even just because of the disease, but because people want to save money. Um, and we now have seen, and will continue to see, although I don't know how many like I don't want to say too specific about what has occurred because they keep changing things so by the time I put this up you know five more things yeah but uh like we have seen that things that we thought were impossible they could really do what they want to do like they can they can kind of do what they want to do Mm -hmm. like obstacles that are in in our way are really only there because people put them there didn't just happen right we like we've been telling the people this but, but now now all of a sudden when and you know why it's because anybody can get this disease and they they aren't protected and they don't know who has it so therefore they're like well we well we must protect everybody which they should but it's interesting that because no one is immune and no one as far as we know people probably the people who are asymptomatic i guess are immune but you know what i'm saying um they made all these changes with this just, they snapped their fingers. Mm -hmm. And for example, like certain cities and States have moratoriums on mortgages. um, Just no evictions, at least in New York state, as I'm saying this, I said, I wasn't going to say anything that was current, but it seems like it's going to be the case for a few months at least. So Um, there's, they just said that state testing is not going to happen. Don't like That's that. that's a big deal, right? Like sure, what's yeah. going, what's going to happen to those kids? Now, mm-hmm. one might argue that they didn't need the tests in the first place, right? Yeah. But are they really going to, like, because they're not going to hold every single person back a year. They're not going to do that. If they're going to hold some of them back, but they're not going to hold every single child in the entire state back a year. They're not going to do that. Right. So like. What is going to be developed to evaluate these children? We'll see, and what will happen to the teachers whose, like, quote unquote, accountability is based around those tests, and so on and so. Like, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know, right? And we're going to see all these conferences are going to try to go virtual, a lot of them, right? And what's going to happen? Are they actually going to get more people on the web? Version of it, then we're in the room because what you go to a conference? How many people are in aside from the big, you know, keynote? Right. What are there? Forty people in the room? It's just the oh, rooms are only so big. Forty is so, even packed
1: I would be, I would be honored <laughs> if forty people came to my presentation. Yeah, I had, I had like, I think,
0: 20, yeah.
1: I think I've topped off at like twenty-seven.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I had like I had like twenty-five last last uh, last November, and I was just like golden right and I recorded it and I put it on this podcast and I got like 10 times as many people to listen to the podcast and actually went to (laughs) well
1: and especially since AERA is not doing registration fees right this year right I mean you can donate your registration fee and I was like no give me my money back
0: yeah
1: I need that I got bills
0: yeah exactly But that's a (laughs) because like maybe they're going to see, I don't know how many people are in one session. Like we're saying, it's like 25. I can bet you more than 20 people are going to watch some of those, some of those
1: things,
0: you know, and they're not going to get the same amount of money, but like how many of the things that are currently in place, will it turn out we just don't need, you know, these obstacles? Um, And then to bring it back to what we were talking about, like, I think that a lot of the ways that niceness and whiteness stay in place are some of these just sort of artificial obstacles, you know, if you think about like whiteness as property and all of that, right? So Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to sort of envision like what can be pushed for in terms of removing, not removing, dismantling, whatever, fighting against some of the structures that keep niceness in place. I don't know what a a policy against niceness or something would be, but, like, I don't know. Like, even thinking about, like, diversity and stuff like that. Like, there's so many policies around diversity that are just nonsense, you know? So what... I, I would like to see, for example, we can just go from here. Just otherwise, I'm just asking questions for no reason. Um, I'd like to see, like, if I look at a job, for example, at the bottom it says "equal opportunity employer,"
1: right? Mm-hmm.
0: They have to do that. Mm-hmm. Put it on there. They all say it to the point where it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> like, like they, they have to say it. So, like, so, like, you created a policy with no teeth. Like, it's a policy that, like, everybody has to stamp this just on their mm-hmm. job ad. Sometimes they don't even write equal opportunity employer. They just write EOE. They, say they just put it in, like, if you look at the bottom of it, it just says EOE. That's it. They don't say anything else. It's like EOE. Yeah, 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 yeah. fine. Um, <laughs> uh, but then you look at the the masthead or whatever with the staff pictures and everybody's white. So like, <laughs> you're just like, oh, you know, we just, they just want the right fit. So what are some some things that could really work against this sort of hegemony that you think that people have been talking about that you've been thinking about in terms of whiteness that like we might be able to actually think of and push towards? It's a kind of an existential question, but I, I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to stop.
1: <laughs> um, I think that like I've been thinking about it a lot in the reverse of how you just outlined it. So you're talking about things that, were there that are being removed because of coronavirus. A lot of the ways that I've been thinking about is the way that this virus has um, really highlighted and pointed out some, like, safety nets and stuff like that That and and just like, policies that weren't right. They haven't been right, but it was like, we were all in our niceness bubbles and we didn't want to see it. And now that everything is falling up, falling apart around us and we're seeing people that we know who are affected to a greater degree than perhaps we are. Like, I know that, like, I feel so lucky in all of this. Like, I have a job that I can easily do from home. I'm on, I have a salary, I have benefits, um, I have a house to be in, um, I'm not worried about getting food and having all this stuff, I can pay my bills, like, I'm very, very, very lucky in this, but I see, like, some of my friends who are contingent faculty members, um, like, adjuncts who don't have health insurance because they're not full time at the university, and I see universities turning a blind eye to that um, and being like, mm, "Oh well, like, sorry." Um, I see like people who are having to go out and work because they don't have enough sick days built up, and there's not like equitable leave policies.
0: Oh, but Trump gave us two whole weeks, see.
1: I know, right? And if you get coronavirus, that's not going to do you much good. Um, I, I just, I see all of these, like, and I also see, like, capitalism is, like, having a really bad day, and it points out, like, hmm, like... Maybe we don't want to put all of our eggs in this basket. Because this basket's not very sturdy if it's, like, falling apart right now. And I, so, it's like, airlines going bankrupt and stuff, like... Hmm,
0: like for no reason, though. Because they spent all their money buying back their own stock. Like, for no... Like, they have, they have money.
1: They yeah, just
0: so it's just like, it
1: you're doing something wrong. <laughs>
0: um, it reminds me like um, the stock market is, is cratering, right? Because, not because people are sick, but because they, <laughs> because people are the, the stock market is cratering, not because of the sickness, but because people had to go home to avoid the sickness and can't spend as much money, right? And I haven't spent as much money since I've been home. It's nothing to spend money on besides occasionally getting some groceries. Um, and like, or the restaurants and all that, like they don't care about the people working there. It's just, oh, people won't be able to spend money, right? And you notice it continues to go down. And the only time it goes up for a second is when they say something that suggests that actually spending, you know, will be okay. But you realize that it's it's just... Um, I don't know, magic. Like that's that's just all it is. It's just magic. Uh, it's 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 their belief in what people will spend.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And especially like capitalism and the economic system is I like to it's, I like to think of it in terms of it's not like what's going to happen tomorrow and it's not what's going to happen in the long-term future. It's this like quarter model. It's like, what's going to happen in the next three months? That's all they're mm-hmm. thinking about. What are their earnings going to be three months from now, right? Mm-hmm. That's all they're thinking about. They don't necessarily care about right now because they, they don't care if somebody has enough money to live, right? And they don't really care if someone has enough money to retire, but they care if they have enough money to spend in the next three months. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all it is. That's all that matters. Yeah. Um, they need to, there's a lot of people who it turns out we need to protect or not just protect by throwing money at in an emergency. I mean, that's nice. That's what they should do right now. But like, make it so when there's another emergency and there will be, that isn't a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not so many people. If it's like, mm-hmm. I understand that there's, it seems like it's impossible that there won't be anybody who's in a bad position. But like, and one thing I'm really worried about there's a lot of things I'm worried, about. but one thing I'm really worried about is, so at the moment, in the initial wave crest or whatever, anybody is anybody who's older, immunocompromised, but there's no income related to who is could get it yet, right? Because it's just who you come in contact with. Um,
1: but I think that there will be. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like exactly. What, the initial part is going to be terrible and people are going to die and they're dying and so on and so forth, although it seems like even though it's increasing at the rate that Italy is, it doesn't seem like it's going to be quite as bad as that numbers-wise, but maybe I shouldn't say anything because we don't know what's going to happen. However, once that part subsides, and it simply will because we're inside now, then the only people who are vulnerable aside from the healthcare professionals are going to be the people who had to work. Mm -hmm. who had to come in contact with us, right? Because part of the thing that I found interesting in the last couple of days since I've been inside is that as they've gradually shut down more businesses, I happen to live in a neighborhood where every business is kind of essential. Like I live next to a government office and I live in front of the subway and I live next to some like like a Dunkin' Donuts with like they just went takeout. Like (laughs) um, I live near a pharmacy. So like when I go outside, Things don't really look any different where I live. They just kind of look the same. Um, it, it looks kind of like a weekend because, like, because like some things aren't happening, but like people aren't walking in groups. That's the really only difference. And there's like a bar two blocks away that's closed. That's kind of the only thing that's really closed within a few blocks of here, though. I mean, I guess the gym, but the gym only just opened. So, um, but like, there are a lot of people working there necessarily have to come in contact with a lot of people all the time Mm -hmm. and you know the the long tail of this that will last longer is that they don't want this to last forever so they will eventually come up with something that helps most people but what about those people Mm -hmm. you know what's going to happen nothing good will happen to them let's put it that way no yeah and i'm deeply concerned about what will happen to the people who, because they, people saying that this percentage group, like we don't really know anything about this illness yet, Um, but people were saying that there was that one doctor in China who died, it was like 29, they're like, oh my God. It's like, well, what really happened is that he got like very exposed to it, like, Mm -hmm. because he was like working with it a lot. So if you like, they're saying it's anybody if you get that exposed to it, you know, things could go really poorly. Um, so that's what I'm worried about with these people is that they're probably going to have a much higher chance of getting up, like a lot of exposure to it versus mm-hmm. me or you, if we were outside, we wash our hands, we may be exposed to it, but probably not for very long unless someone like literally coughs on us. Um, right. and they, if you're working in a convenience store, you know, it's a lot of people coming in there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or like, I think about, um, janitorial staffs. Yeah like, even, even, like, on our university campus, some of my, um, colleagues and I have been talking about how, like, people going into their office still, like, A, that's probably going to be shut down if it's not already been. I think it might already have been, but, um, like, if you're going to use your office, like, maybe don't, like, maybe put a sign on your door that says, Hey, don't feel the need to clean inside here. Protect them a little bit. Like, because then if it's just you going in and out of your office, like, and eventually, like, you'll be out of your office for enough time that the virus will die on the surfaces or whatever. But, like, right. but yeah, I do worry about janitorial staffs. Like, that's.
0: Yeah, because, like, for me, like, it was only, honestly, last week, I wasn't super comfortable going into work because of all this that was going on, but, like, I knew once I got to my desk, not how much was going to happen to me. I was just sitting at my desk all day, you know? <laughs> like, like, it's you know the
1: process long, of getting
0: there. Yeah, it's getting there and getting back. It was much more getting back because of the time of day it was. Um, but, like, there weren't that many people on the subway, you know, I kept, kept to myself, and it really wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but, like, again, janitorial staff. They, they are the only people in the building and I, work in, I work, in a work in a World Trade Center. So like if you, that's like there's they're interacting with many people, let's put it that right. way. And many substances and so on and so forth. And, you know, that's going to be, it's it's going to become, I can envision I can, we don't know what's going to happen. I keep, keep saying that. but I can envision it basically becoming like they're going to want to restart economic things, right? And they are willing, as you see, to do many things to help people in a pinch if it means that we can possibly restart something. Um, And if they get some sort of antiviral treatment, which like there's some malaria drug, we'll see what happens, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and, you know, if that makes it so that, Therefore, if people get it, it's not that big of a deal. Then, like, what's going to be is then they're going to try to mass produce that. Because that's an old, like, that's not made by a big drug manufacturer. So there's not as much of a profit motive there. That just try to pump that out to everybody. And then what are you going to see? Are you going to see, like, the way kids have to get vaccines to go into school? Are people going to have to have that to get into any public place? You know, you know, you want to go to a baseball game, you need that. Right, um, and what would I say to myself? Like that person doesn't have it. Would I not like? Oh, wait a second. I don't know if it want to be because it doesn't mean they do have it. It just means they haven't had the. the you know, I'm just thinking right. of these scenarios where they could use this as a way to create um, just a permanent, like like a very marked underclass. Um, in a way that people certainly already exist as one but it would be very very clear and it, it's just a way of marking people you know as disabled in a way um, and undesirable and we need to get rid of them and so on and so forth but we okay. can't get rid of them because we need them to do right. that for us <laughs> um, so all right well
1: interesting to see how this all pans out and
0: Yeah, because I'm just, like, sitting here watching it from my window, and I'm just like, uh,
1: I know, know. and all this, like, empty time to think is not great for the whole anxiety.
0: Nope, it is (laughs) not, and, like, we all think that the way that the world is going to change is going to be, like, the day after tomorrow, but... It's more like this. It's just like you look out the window and nothing has changed. I
1: don't know,
0: unless you live.
1: Orangina.
0: Yeah, I say Or unless you look live across you from like a hospital or something. But um, yeah, you know, this is you know we're gonna see stuff like World War Two or like uh, like extra encampments and stuff like that. But um, I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts about niceness and whiteness, and I was glad to be able to speak to you about your yeah. on the on such things. Um, and I, uh, do you have anything else you'd like to say about niceness and whiteness and what we might all be able to do about it?
1: I always just challenge people to like be open to talking about it. And don't ask like um like assume that you're gonna make mistakes. And once you assume that you're going to make mistakes, it's not like, well, I don't wanna say the wrong thing. It's like, no, you're going to say the wrong thing. Like, it happens and like what happens when it's not if you're going to say the wrong thing. It's when you say the wrong thing. How are you going to handle that? How are you going to smooth things over if you've said something that offends somebody Um, and just practice humility like like intellectual humility and just I don't know it's just plan out how to get over that fear
0: Americans are not very good at intellectual humility
1: I know. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but it's just, I mean, even starting the conversation with like, you know, I, I don't talk about this a lot. I don't have these conversations a lot. So I apologize if I say something wrong, please let me know and I'm willing to learn. And then just diving in, like just reading. I mean, we live in a world where we're surrounded by information so I mean I always like hesitate to like challenge my students to like go have this conversation with like a person of color because I don't want them to like go up to a person of color and be like teach me about racism because that's nobody's job to do that and especially not when we live in a world where there's so many documentaries there's so many podcasts there's so many books there's so many articles online like YouTube is a thing like there's so much knowledge out there that it's just like commit yourself to learning about something that you didn't know about and then like talking about it especially like i would love to see like white people talk to white people about race a lot more than they do
0: i suppose i would like to see it too but just by definition i wouldn't really be able to see it now would i there you (laughs) go (laughs) because i wouldn't
1: i'll I'll let you know if i see it